when I was 10, 11, or 12 years old, our extended family of 15 to 20 people camped for a week at Emerald Lake Campground in East Dorset, Vermont, just off of U.S. Route 7. Now, the other families all slept in tents, but we always slept in a lean-to. And I thought we were camping in luxury. Now, the tents were the old-fashioned and often made uh, of canvas or, or some kind of thin material and were relatively small. But our structure was made of thick and sturdy wood. The floor was about 20 feet long across the back from side to side and over 10 feet long from the back to the front. Now, it sloped fairly steeply, and the back wall, the roof was only about four feet off the ground. But that was just perfect because we would put two cots along the back wall, two cots along the side wall, blankets in the middle to divide our parents from my sister and me. But at the front, the roof was some 10 feet high, and then there was a gentle slope that went three feet beyond the floor, so the open wall faced a big, beautiful fireplace. And it got very cold, even in the summer at night, but we could have a fire going all night and, and, and stay uh, warm. Now, I will always remember our last year camping there when I was uh, about 12 years old. There was a family that brought one of the first RVs ever to one of the tenting sites. And um, Dad came back one night uh, after visiting there. I was reading a book in my sleeping bag on my cot. And they had invited him in for a tour. And he said he went in, he says, wow, they've got a little kitchen in there, and they've even got their own private bathroom. Well, um, this was very important. You've got to understand my, my dad. Um, he used to have to go to the bathroom at least twice every single night. And, and, and the uh, only bathroom, the public bathroom, was quite a hike sometimes, and he had to bring a, a flashlight with him. Now, adults thought I was a pretty good kid, and, and maybe that was the image I wanted to portray. But my response to all of us in that lean-to and what he had... Oh, I forgot to say. He came back and he said, I am green with envy. Okay? Imagine that. A bathroom right in where you're camping and not that long walk. So my response, because he said green with envy, uh, I said to him, Dad, you just broke the 10th commandment. You are coveting that RV. And um, I I realize now (laughs) that my answer was the great sin of self-righteousness. Now, you know, 
Kids, kids see everything kind of uh, black and white, and, and we oversimplify things. Okay. But I wanted to tell that story uh, on myself and our family because what we're going to be doing this morning with this introduction and illustration is looking at what God actually says about what coveting is. Understand what this commandment taught the Apostle Paul so that he um, learned what coveting was and the danger of such. And then the last passage we heard from Corinthians, we will see what Paul said as God spoke through him about sacrificial love being the answer so that we may apply all of this to our lives. This isn't just for the first century or Moses' day, actually. So let's begin with Exodus and Paul's commentary on it. So the first main point. And the biggest point this morning is God's people will not covet anything which is their neighbors. And if they do, this is a sin that will expose them as being spiritually dead. So we've been going through the Ten Commandments the last three weeks. And now we've come to the last and the tenth one. And it says God's people will not covet either the shelter, the wife, the workers, the manner of food distribution and production, or anything that is their neighbor. So let's go through this one phrase by phrase. I found five phrases. It starts out quite plainly, thou will not covet the house of thy neighbor. Now let me give you a, 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 a definition from the absolute Number one, Hebrew-English dictionary. And, and I will quote it in part. Coveting is an excessive, ungoverned, selfish desire or lust for that which belongs to another person. Now, let's take a little interpretation. In past weeks, we've been reading and hearing from Matthew 22, where Jesus gives an answer, what is the great commandment? And he also talked about the second great commandment. And coveting makes neighbor love, Matthew 22, 39, impossible. And coveting is a breaking of the second great commandment. Now, what's being talked about here by, by house, it means primarily that we are not to be discontented with whatever means that God gives my family, myself, for shelter. Just because my neighbor may have what I think is a better shelter. Then going on, God said through Moses, not thou will covet the wife of thy neighbor. And, and this is very important, and I think it's something that all societies, cultures lose over time. But the one flesh marriage covenant between one man and one woman, it is sacred. And no desire of a man outside that covenant relationship should ever threaten it. Then God goes on and, and says, 
and his manservant and his maidservant. Now, their culture was different, but I think in our culture, this applies to workers. It is wrong to desire the people my neighbor has working for him that they would be working for me. And, and, and please let's hear this. Uh, we all need to hear it myself as well. God always gives his people whatever they need, but not always what they want. We need to distinguish between the two. Going on, and again, we're going to take this beyond the culture of Israel. But the fourth one is his ox and his donkey. Now, both of these animals did work for families, both in planting and harvesting food and also to bring goods to market. So let's bring it up to the 21st century. And actually, I'm probably living in the 20th century. But today, this could be anything in the line of tools, instruments, machines, technology. Yeah, maybe even these smartphones. Um, Information in an information age. All of these things, we should not covet that our neighbor may have something better than us. And finally, just in case people haven't gotten the point, God closes. And all which is of the neighbor or to the neighbor of thee. So after four specific kinds of coveting, God closes with this catch-all. No one may covet anything, anything whatsoever that belongs to his neighbor. I think the best way to sum this up is God is saying, do not violate your neighbor. All God's people must be content with what God has given them. And I was reminded of how Paul concluded his first letter to Timothy when Timothy had been appointed the bishop of all Asia Minor. He said, but it is great gain, godliness with contentment. This coveting command is negative, but the positive command is let us be content in God. Now, uh, I'm going to deviate from what I found on the uh, sermon uh, website. I think the paragraph, the paragraph in the Gospels and New Testament that comments on this better than anything else is what Paul wrote in Romans 7. And we can summarize it this way. Because God's Torah specifically calls covetousness a sin, then the Apostle Paul realized he was indeed spiritually dead and needed life. So this is kind of complicated, and uh, I'll read what was inspired and then expand on it a bit. So Paul begins with a rhetorical question. He loved this. What then will we say? The law, instruction, is sin. May it never be. But the sin, not I knew, but by the law. What does this mean? Well, God gave his people, his Torah, which literally means instruction through Moses, so that they will know that they sin. 
This was Luther's big thing. Everything flowed from this. So the way I would put it is Torah law is not sin, but it reveals sin. It reveals our sin. Paul goes on for covetousness, covetousness would not have known. I would not have known if not the Torah law was saying not thou will covet. He quotes it exactly. Now, the excessive desire of coveting is an extreme desire. He used the word which was translated in some Bibles as lust to break the marriage covenant of a neighbor. This was the second of four specifics given to Moses in the 10th commandment. And and now people, um, this occurred to me, it is for me. God has done this to me many times as I've read scripture. So hear me, hear me. Every time we read God's word, let us be open to being convicted by the Holy Spirit of any sin we may be committing. I think this is an important aspect of God's word. It's too easy to be ignorant of our sins, but they can be exposed by this book. Paul continues, but having taken opportunity, sin by means of the commandment produced in me all covetousness. For without Torah law, sin is dead. If we don't know it's sin, we don't experience it as sin. We don't realize it. That's ignorance. So Paul is saying once he realized that coveting was a sin, the sin nature he was born with was pulling him deeper into covetousness. Now, God's instruction in the books of Moses brings to light the contrast, the conflict between God's word and our fallen human nature. Paul continues, but if I was being alive without the law at one time, the commandment having now come, sin came back to life But indeed, I died. This is heavy, but the contrast of the commandment about coveting and Paul's sin nature tending to covet caused him to even covet more. If we try to do it in our own strength, it's only going to get worse. And this highlighted to him the very state of his being spiritually dead. I think the whole point of the 10th commandment is this. Coveting is the key sin to expose spiritual death of people. Paul goes on, and he just keeps looking at this truth from every angle. And it was found in me the commandment, which is unto life, this is unto death. So Paul restates his critical truth here, confronting him concerning the commandment about coveting. It was the hardest sin for him to overcome. And it is the hardest sin, I believe, for many, if not most people 
And the end result, he's saying, was it was supposed to be life, but it's death. He's spiritually dead due to coveting. Many people are. Coveting is the key to expose spiritual death. And then he goes on to say, for sin, having taken opportunity by means of the commandment, deceived me and by means of it put me to death. Sin of coveting is deceptive. All sins deceptive, but the wages of sin is death. So without God's grace and love, the sin of coveting resulted in Paul being, before meeting Christ, spiritually dead. Again, Paul is saying, by every means possible, coveting is the key to expose spiritual death. Once again, he restates there's nothing wrong with the law, the Torah, the instruction given through Moses. Jesus said the same thing. He came to fulfill it and to be the perfect fulfillment. He says, so indeed, Torah law is holy and the commandment is holy, just and good. You see, God gave his words to Moses just because of this. They're holy, they're just, they're good. But when people are controlled by their sin nature, God's word cannot save them. Something must happen. So he concludes this paragraph by saying, did what is good to me become death? May it never be. But sin that it might be seen sin through the intended for good to me, bringing about death, that it might become exceedingly sinful, the sin through the commandment. So you know this is a paragraph because Paul begins it and ends it with this strong, strong negation. God would never... Bring bad out of what he intends for good. The problem's not with God, it's with us. And this specific commandment against coveting of all kinds exposes how offensive coveting is to God and causes people to have to find some way out from under the death which coveting causes. Coveting the key to expose spiritual death. Now, something happened between Moses and Paul. What was it? The good news of Jesus Christ. So let me just um, explain this to you in its simplest form. God sent his son into the world, born of a virgin, in order that the world might be saved through him. Starting at age 30, by words and deeds, Jesus, the Son of God, showed the power and love of God. And then in his great love for humanity, he offered himself to death on the cross. But he rose from the dead on the third day, and all who can receive this by faith are not only forgiven of all sin, including covetousness, but are given a new life starting now and forever, a life of service to God and to people. 
So now let's look at another letter where the Apostle Paul describes God's sacrificial love by which Jesus triumphed over the sinfulness of coveting for all who receive him and are in him by grace through his faithfulness. It's a familiar passage, but I learned something new this week. The 15 qualities of Christ-like sacrificial love. And I'll just give you four of them to kick it off. Forbearance, trust, hope, and perseverance. And then I was shocked because I've actually used this in little homilies in, in, in many marriages that I did my first years. Every one of these qualities is a verb, not a noun. I always took them as nouns. So understand that in this, even though he's writing in Greek, Paul is being very Hebrew. You see, Greek is a noun-based language. Hebrew is a verb-based language. Now let's go through these 15 qualities. I'll bring out the highlights. The first two tell us sacrificial love is forbearing and kind. So using perfect Greek, he says, the love, agape, agape, it is forbearing. God's sacrificial love. And, you know, it took me so long to find this out, and then I realized Jonathan Edwards has said it hundreds of years ago. First, I thought the love chapter was all about me and pity me, nobody loves me. Then I said, God doesn't care about that. What this chapter is telling me is this is the kind of love he wants me to have for people. Now I'm in kindergarten. Finally, finally, I graduated high school when I realized this chapter describes God's love for us. The love he wants to give us to love others with. So it all starts. This is God's love. God's sacrificial love in his Savior King's Son. It is patient. It is enduring. It is long-suffering. Second, it's being kind. Sacrificial love is always being and acting kindly in gentleness. And then we have eight negatives, eight things God's sacrificial love is not. Jealous, conceited, being made proud, improper, self-seeking, being made irritable, considering evil, rejoicing in justice. Let's look at each one. The love, agape, not it is being jealous. Sacrificial love does not boil over with envy of anyone to covet what is that person's. And then we're told the love not is boasting about itself. Sacrificial love does not brag. It's not conceited with boasting over other people. And then not it is being made proud, arrogant. Okay, here's a passive verb. But sacrificial love will not let itself get puffed up about itself, but it acts in all humility. And not it is being made disgraceful, improper. Sacrificial love does not act against God's grace by any improper behavior. Not it is seeking herself. That means love doesn't seek love, but it seeks to please God or others. 
a person filled with God's sacrificial love as the fruit of the Holy Spirit would never, never, never seek to love in such a way as to seek credit for that loving. And then we have another passive one. Not is being made irritable. Sacrificial love will not allow any outside force to provoke it, to lash out in anger. Seventh, not it is considering the evil. Sacrificial love will never consider doing harm to or acting wickedly towards other people. And then the final negative, not it is rejoicing in injustice. Please understand this. Justice is a big buzzword all over the world today, believers and unbelievers. But sacrificial love never finds any joy in being unjust, okay? God is justice, and if we have God's sacrificial love in us, we cannot tolerate injustice. We will not be joyful over it. We will not be indifferent. Then we conclude with five positives of sacrificial love, rejoicing in truth, all things enduring, all things believing, all things hoping, all things holding firm. So there's a transition here from the negative to the positive. First, Sacrificial love is rejoicing with the truth. And understand this, Jesus called himself the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sacrificial love is also able to sacrifice as Jesus did. And find joy, find joy in suffering for his truth. All things enduring. Sacrificial love can also bear any hardships for other people and even on its own. Hardships do not break it down. All things it is believing. Sacrificial love believes in God, in his word, in his ways, and is strong giving, strong. Strong, life-giving, life-changing love. There it is. It's all of that. And finally, finally, all things it is holding firm. This is where we really, really, really need prayer. Because things are, are going downhill rapidly, at least in our country today. People giving sacrificial love will persevere, will hang in there, will not fail by the grace of God until they see Jesus, either when they die or when he returns to earth. So let's bottom line all of this. God's sacrificial love as expressed in the life and work of his son rescues people from all sin, even coveting. This is because love trusts, hopes, and perseveres. So let's pull it all together. God tells his people individually and collectively as one people, they will not covet anything that is their neighbor's. And the Apostle Paul said this particular command woke him up to the truth that he was spiritually dead and needed to have life in himself. And then elsewhere, 
elsewhere, he described 15 qualities of God's love that rescues people from every sin, even coveting. So especially people in our consumer culture, let us realize that coveting is the key to exposing spiritual death. And and again, how do we overcome it? If we consecrate ourselves and fully hand ourselves over to God to be his instruments, then we can overcome this sin of covetousness.